0: For show notes from this episode, visit sustainableambition.com slash podcast. Now let's learn more to help you craft your career to support your life from decade to decade. On to today's conversation. Welcome back, everyone. I am so excited to be joined today by Christine Bader and Eva Dienel, the creators of The Life I Want. Christine and Eva, welcome to the show. Thank you, Kathy. Thanks for having us. Of course. I'm so excited to talk with you guys today and hear more about your work and what has put you on this journey of exploration. So before we dive into all of that, let me properly introduce you to Christine and Eva. And I will say these are abbreviated bios um, for each of them, but I will have in the show notes a link to each of their websites. So Christine is a coach, facilitator, writer, consultant, and speaker whose sweet spot is the messy intersection of business and society. She is the author of the 2014 book, The Evolution of a Corporate Idealist, When Girl Meets Oil. Eva Dino is a writer, editor, and communications consultant with more than 20 years of experience telling stories that matter, stories with an environmental, social, or human focus that engage people in making the world a better place. Her clients include global leaders in sustainability. Together, they are the founders of The Life I Want, a future of work that works for all. At The Life I Want, they are telling stories that show a better future of work. For them, the future of work is not about robots and automation, it's about changing our relationship with work as individuals and as a society so more people can live happier, more fulfilled lives. They dive into the stories of people redefining the role of work in their lives, organizations that are radically rethinking work, and communities and societies that are supporting their citizens to work the way they want so they can live the life they want. They aim to inspire people to rethink work, to make work work, so more of us can engage with our families and communities and ultimately create a better world. Now, Christine and Eva share many things in common, including this pursuit, and they're both writers in their own right, as you heard me mention, and they are both idealists and mothers of twins. So, Christine and Eva, on The Life I Want, you write about, quote, what if work could give us the life we want? And how you are exploring reimagining the role of work in our lives and societies, And, you know, it made me think of the idea of working to live as opposed to living to work. And and you go on to essentially say just that, that how you came to this work was that you realized you were both experimenting with ways to build work around life rather than building a life around work. So finally, my question for each of you, can you share what brought each of you to exploring crafting your work to your life versus building life around work? And then how did you find each other on this journey? And perhaps, Christine, you can start us off.
1: Yeah, happy to. Thank you. Um, Yes. So I have spent um, most of my career in the field of corporate social responsibility and sustainability. And in 2015, I made it to the peak of that field, um, which was to be tapped to be the director of social responsibility at Amazon. Uh, So um, challenge and opportunity like no other uh, in the field. And so um, packed up my family in New York and we moved to Seattle uh, so I could take that job. And um, I had a great run there. I got to be in the belly of the beast Uh, in a historic company, in a historic moment in its history, and um, build a fantastic team, and uh, really see a lot of the things that I've been working on, you know, right in front of my face every day. So uh, it was a great opportunity, but then I came home one day about a year and a half in uh, to my husband and our then three-year-old twins, who were reading on the couch together, as they often were when I got home from work, Um, but they were reading to him. And I thought, when did you learn how to read? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So I quit because it was a great opportunity, but um, it wasn't worth everything. Uh, So we um, stayed in Seattle for another year and then decided to take a big family adventure and move to Indonesia to um, enroll our kids at the green school which is a K through 12 independent school. That's all about sustainability. And so I had this um, vague recollection that Eva had moved to Australia and so reached back out to her and we knew each other from our days um, being affiliated with BSR formerly business for social responsibility. And, uh, and I reached out and we were chatting about um, the things that we were thinking about and, uh, because I realized that, you know, I had everything that one should have in a job. I had purpose, I had a great salary, I had a supportive spouse, um, but work still wasn't working. So I was still kind of noodling that over and then um, reconnected with Eva. And uh, Eva, I'll let you tell your story and then leading to what um, how you came to this, but then it became obvious that we had some exploring to do together. <laughs>
2: Yeah. I remember getting that email from um, Christine because we were about to fly down for our first trip down to Tasmania. And I got this email that said something along the lines of heading to your hemisphere now, we should talk. And I was like, yay, somebody else is coming down here. Um, So for me, this journey started really, I started questioning the role of work in my life and family very young. So when I was... When I was young, my parents got divorced and my um, we lived in a very small town. My dad was a doctor and my, my mom wanted to pursue her career, but she had kind of been following my dad around for his um, fellowship and his residency and then landed in Southern Oregon, in Medford, Oregon. And when they got divorced, she wanted to actually pursue her medical degree. And the nearest medical school was in Portland, which was five hours North. And you know, this is at a time when Oregon Health Sciences University was actually recruiting a lot of women. But of course, they weren't like, it's not like you can go to medical school and have a three-year-old and five-year-old in tow. So she went up to medical school and actually, unusually, my dad raised us and he had custody. But what that experience left me with was this feeling that I never wanted to have to make the choice between, um, I knew I wanted to have kids and I never wanted to have to make the choice between raising my kids and, um, ha- and having a career. So I like to say, so for the longest time through work and I went to journalism school and I explored this question <clears throat> of what it meant to have a family and to be ambitious at the same time while I was in journalism school. I wrote an essay about it for a magazine writing class. I did an oral history project about it and interviewed um, women professors in in the field of journalism. And actually, you know, one of my professors talked to me with the with tears in her eyes saying that she had quit her job. She was one of the kind of highest level women editors at a Metro paper in the, in the U S and she left her job when she had kids because it was really hard to balance. And another one of the um, women I interviewed said, I, my husband proposed to me and I turned him down for 10 years because the guys at my paper were saying, you must not be that ambitious if you're going to get married and she never had kids so i just didn't want that to be my story and and moreover i kind of came to this conclusion during that class i thought this is actually life is something we should discuss crafting a life is something that we should discuss in professional schools because being a journalist is like a calling and it's a dedication but if you also being a parent is also a calling and wanting to have a family is also a calling so this idea sort of stuck with me throughout my life and then when i was 25 I landed in San Francisco. And I remember sitting down with my best friend from high school who also lived in San Francisco. And we're sitting at the people's um, cafe on Haight Street. And I was kind of thinking about the life that I wanted. I'd just gotten a job at Mother Jones Magazine. And I thought one of these days, I want to go freelance. And I want to have, I want to live in a place where I, um, I had three P's, so you've got your your P's, Kathy. <laughs> and my three P's were um, profession, place, and people. And those were the th- three things that mattered most to me. I wanna live in a place where I can spend a lot of time outdoors. I like to run every day. I like to ski, rock climb. Um, I want to live in a place where I have people who love me and whom I love and care for. And I want to have a profession that's fulfilling and also pays me what I need to pay. So that was the profession. And it sort of has a purpose piece to it. It took me a really long time to get to the point where I felt like I could go freelance. I um, started dating Adam, who became my husband. He had this dream to move back to his home country in Australia and um, run his own vineyard. He was a winemaker in the US for large white wine companies for about 20 years. So in 2005, he bought property here, bought an old sheep paddock, and just over the years, slowly planted a vineyard, slowly built a winery. We eventually built a house. We had our twins in 2010. And we always had this plan that as soon as the kids got to school, to school age, we would move to Australia and we would be basically a starving writer and a starving um, farmer. And that's where we are. And I like to say now I'm ambitious until three o'clock. And that's when I turn off my computer and I'm very upfront with my clients about, no, look, you know, this is, I work 20 to 25 hours a week. It pays me enough to live. Australia has a great healthcare system. So we don't have the burden of that cost here. And that's the life that I want, that balance. But I don't just want it for me. I want it for more people. So when I heard that Christine was moving to Bali and was exploring this same question, I was like, look, I started this blog when I started freelancing five years ago because there's no playbook out there. And I wanted to interview people to find out how are you living the life that you want? How are you crafting your work around your life so that your, your work gives you everything that you need, but your life gives you everything that you just are here for. We're here on this planet, not just to work, but to live. So that's the kind of long-winded backstory.
0: No, it's so great. And I I will I want to come back, Christine, to what you said too. Like, hey, everything I did everything I thought I was meant to do and that I thought I wanted and had a full life, but it still wasn't working, right? And Mm -hmm. Eva, you had a childhood experience and growing up and saw it firsthand and really were inspired early on to kind of say, I want something different. And so kind of had it on the horizon and- I was curious about, you know, and Eva, you wrote about this in in one of your essays, how in that first blog that, you know, you thought that people who maybe followed these, what some may say, right, these are untraditional paths in a way. You really have to fight against the inertia to kind of step outside the norm um, of following these paths that are set out in society. And you said, you know, I thought they had a superpower. And now you guys are on this path. And as I hear you, like you guys had the power and the conviction and um, had the courage to step outside and do something different. And um, I'm curious if you think it's still a superpower or, um, you know, what kind of has inspired you to be bold or what is it that makes people unique when they're able to kind of see that and be courageous and do what society hasn't set us up to do, right? Even though you guys are having the conviction to say, but it should, right? It really should. And so what, what do some of us need to learn or pay, learn to pay attention to around this, to start to like kind of buck the norm or to start to even reshape society. So it starts to shape towards us as opposed to us shaping towards these norms. So I don't know, Eva, if you want to start with that.
2: Yeah, I mean I I I've definitely like I still definitely think that you need a superpower and in some cases a superpower might be defined as a union. Like mm. <laughs> there's, you 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 not everybody is born with the same amount of privilege and agency. I was very lucky. I'm very lucky to be in Australia where we can live this kind of life and where it's possible, right? But I think that um, the first sort of at the individual level, you need to have that sense of what you really want in your life and you do need to have your own metrics. And I think you talked about this a lot in your own work, right? You can't just let society's measurements of success be your own measurements of success because that's going to push you, particularly in American culture, toward just working all the time in this cult of productivity and getting these credentials if you have your measure of success like for me when i when i quit my job i said i want to run as many miles a week as i work i want to go i want to spend more nights camping outside like those were going to be my measures of success for my life because my life i wanted to be balanced right but i also think that there are two things there's uh, there's superpowers and then there's safety nets and i've been thinking about safety nets in two ways i've been thinking about it in terms of the government safety nets that provide for your basic needs, your healthcare, your education, your unemployment benefits, and then your community safety net, who around you is going to take care of you and be that support system. Because when you go against the grain, you need to know who you can lean on because culture is going to be pushing you the other way. So those are the things, those are the things that I think help you go against the grain, but it's, it is, it is definitely hard.
0: Yeah. Christine, how about for you?
1: Yeah, I'll just add one more thing, which is that, um, unfortunately, a lot of times it's a crisis that drives people to ditch the traditional path because we realize how short life is. And so I think part of what we're after, too, is how do we inspire people to realize that without having to go through a health scare, a death in the family, you know, something that reminds us of our mortality. And I think the past year has been, right, has has kind of done that for a lot of people, right? It's sort of woken all of us up to um, wondering what we're doing here uh, and how we're we're spending our time. So, um, So yeah, sometimes it's a crisis too.
2: That too, I think is, is helpful. We're in this moment now where everyone globally is having some version of the same experience. I don't want to diminish, you know, the fact that many people are having it much tougher than I am. For instance, my kids are literally going off to school. Christine's kids haven't been in school for more than a year now. But I think that we're in this moment now where it's it's put power kind of back in the hands of individuals because now if you work for a company that has said, you matter, your health matters, our work for our people are always, we put our people first, you know, Black Lives Matter. If, if the companies are saying these things, you can call them out on it. I mean, not call them out on it, but you can have that conversation with them right now because we're all experiencing this. We can't deny the fact that COVID has exposed so many gaps in our system of work.
0: That's true. I mean, it really gives us permission, right, to start to hold our places of work accountable on many different measures. And I think so often, you know, what we end up getting into around our careers is we don't ask for things. And so I think it's important for people to start to feel like they have some agency. And I hear what you're saying, even because these things are starting to be unearthed. And, you know, companies are putting you know, statements or policies out there where it's kind of like, well, are you going to live this or not? And, you know, what can you start to potentially ask ask for uh, in this realm? So, I, I mean,
1: it's also worth pointing out that I think it's it's also shown how little power and agency, you know, many people have. So I, I think, true. again, um, you know, it gets back to how we're looking at the whole system right it isn't it isn't just about us realizing like oh i need to demand more of my employer it's actually we're we're not in control of everything here
2: yeah um, and i hope i mean i think part of it is that we want to reach audiences to who understand that it's not just about themselves, that that they do, they have agency in their own lives, but it's not enough just to use your agency for yourself. It's extending that to others. So I think like, especially Christine and I having worked in, um, having both had backgrounds in corporate social responsibility, we believe that these are the employers who can take a leading role and who can actually walk the talk. And this is one of those areas that they haven't quite discussed yet. Like, mm. What is What does work look like? What is the experience of work that you as a company are providing as a product to your employee? And how can we make that better? And a lot of the people that we're reaching because of our background have, have the understanding and empathy already, but they also have a little bit of power to start to make that change.
0: Yeah, and I, I'm curious, since this is coming up, I'd love to ask now, like, do you have an early vision of where, based on the research you've done so far, and even, Christine, you talk about this in your TEDx talk, you start to tee up some things around, you know, where do we think the future work should be headed? you know where do we need to, need to be putting some focus to help reshape work in a way that actually is going to support people and cuz i appreciate the pushback where it's like um and this is where i feel like i i really like the work that you're doing because i i think as i was saying earlier before we got started you know my work is trying to give people some sense of feeling of agency to or for themselves or so that they can be in a little bit more choice i think you're Pushback is totally valid that you know you can only control so much. We need society to change as well. So I don't know, Christine, if you want to start in and with that question.
1: Yeah, I'm happy to. I mean, we've we've got a kind of preliminary theory of change, and we're totally open to having it um challenged and poked at, but it's holding up so far, which is that we're looking at four pillars of the system of work. And the first one, which we've touched on is our individual relationship with work, right? So what do I wanna get out of work? And we've given work so much power, right? We let work decide where we live and how we invest in our education and how we spend our energy and our days and who our community is and how we determine our worth and our purpose and our value to the world. Um, So can we reclaim some of that power and actually decide that for ourselves and not put it in the hands of our jobs? Um, So that's the first pillar. The second pillar is our employers, like we were just talking about, that we actually need employers who are really trying to empower people and not just um, give free snacks, uh, but actually give people power and agency. Um, The third piece is how do we activate our community lives, right? Like, just like Eva was talking about, who can we lean on? Who do we um, uh, appreciate leaning on us, right? Right. Um, what, what do we think of as community and how do we play a role in that? Um, and both community inside and outside of work. And then finally, government. So governments are supposed to um, provide basic protections, anti-discrimination laws. Um, Health care would be nice. Uh, and also, you know, proactively think through what are the things that we need to live a healthy life, whether that, that's um, clean air, clean water. Uh, or even thinking um, uh, a little bit creatively, although it shouldn't really be that creative, like here in Oregon, um, Oregon was the first state to pass a law requiring employers to give shift workers advance notice of their schedules, right? So how do we actually make work work for people? So that's our, that's our preliminary um, four pillar framework of the system.
0: Yeah, I love that. And um, I'm curious, Even maybe if you, is there a bright spot that you, you mentioned the Oregon example, which that seems like, of course, right? Like really people shouldn't be given their schedules ahead of time. Like um, talk about work, not working for people. Um, Hello, you were supposed to be here at two um <laughs> but that has happened right um so i don't know even your re- in your research thus far or interviewing people and in the stories you've told is there a bright spot that you might want to highlight
2: Yeah, definitely. I mean, okay. So I have the mom backstory. So I'm sort of, I've been like silently watching the moms organize right now and paying a lot of attention to like mom media, working mom media, which I think is great. And one of the things that I really like to see that's happening right now is that, um, there, there are a few moms Working moms who started up companies, two in particular—one in the U.S. and one in Australia—to help make work better for working parents and caregivers. I was actually trying to dig up this figure, but there's um, there's a very high number of people who are in the sandwich generation. Who's I think they're basically Generation X who are both caring for young children and caring for elderly parents. And I think it's um, I think it, you can say at some point in your life as a working individual you will have to care for someone. So one of the women we profiled, Leslie Ford, started up a business during the pandemic uh, that's called Allies at Work. And the focus of her business is going to companies and helping them improve their policies, better understand the real needs of working parents and how they can, those companies can serve those needs better. And and therefore improve work for working parents. Her theory is that if we fix work for working moms, we can fix work for everyone. And what I think is a bright spot, and I've actually learned this from one of my clients in education too, who's who has said many times, if we fix school for those who are most marginalized in school, so if we think beyond the normal student and we think, who, who is having it tough, toughest here in this school environment? It's probably a student with disabilities. It might be a student with economic hardship. It might be students experiencing um, white supremacy and racism that's built into school and the curriculum. I think the same applies. What Leslie is saying is the same applies at work. If we fix work for those who are most marginalized by work, we're gonna make it better for everyone. I was recently talking to um, a man who work, who's a single guy who works at Estee Lauder. So it's a it's a company that has a lot, a lot of women working for it. And he said, you know, um, during the pandemic, there was a lot of discussion about how to help working parents and how kind of the, the moms in particular were getting a little bit more time off, which is great. But he said, but I have these experiences too. So I feel like I feel like the bright spot here, and you have to bear with me because this is like such a total silver lining, is that we're talking more about care in American culture. And American culture has this like cult of productivity. And I would love to see us start to have a cult of care and I think that the working moms are really, really pushing that conversation. And people like Leslie Ford and then here in the here in Australia, there's um, a startup that has a tech platform that's, again, helping large companies provide all of the needs and resources that their working parents need so that they can get it really easily. And that's called Circle In. They just did, this is fascinating to me, they just did a survey on, for, um, um, women who are experiencing menopause to talk about how that's affected their work, how much support they're getting at work, and I think they said something like only three percent of the women who responded said that they felt like they their needs were met when it came to going through this life experience that every you know woman person who's born a woman will go through. And that excites me. The fact that these, that care is becoming an important conversation point for, for companies makes me think that we're at the point where we might, where we might shift um, the experience of work for a lot more people, not just working moms, but
0: everyone. Yeah, I love that. And the, you know, it's so true that, you know, I don't want to minimize what the experience is for people that um, are in these marginalized groups by any means. But I think it's so true that when you look at some of what their needs are, um it they are the needs of others too, you know, to your point. And so it, it makes sense that, like, if you kind of, it might not be the right word to use this to go to the extremes, right? To find solutions. Um, but you know, if you, if you focus on that, you likely are going to make everything better for the whole. Um, so I really, I really love that. And, you know, along these lines, I'm just curious if there's anything else, either of you, you're kind of talking about, you know, I I don't know if this idea of the she session is being used in Australia, that term, or, you know, it certainly is something that's being talked about here in the United States. And, um, you know, you even in, in your essay, Eva um, mentioned this, like even before the pandemics, so, I mean, this is in 2014 research. You mentioned that one in four working moms cry alone at least once a week because they're so overwhelmed with work, child hair and household chores. Um, and, you know, and now we're at least in the United States, the women's labor force participation hurt a, hit a 33 year low, you know, so the lowest since uh, 1988. Now, 2. So 2.3 million women have, have left the workforce, 1.8 million men. It's still, though, disproportionately towards women. Um, so I don't know if, you know, there's anything more. And Christine, I wonder even, you know, you said, like, look, you, you had the dream job. You know, you had a beautiful family. And yet you were like, this still wasn't working, you know? So I don't know if you have any other thoughts around this, just around this concept of the She Session or, or if, it, if you want to shed any more light on what it means for the work you guys are inspired to do I I would just underscore
1: you know what what Eva said about you know looking at the people who are most marginalized whose needs are the greatest because that's when I think we you know find solutions for Mm. everybody people who need accommodations to give care um, you know, it's, it's not just moms, but if you um, think about it for moms, I think that will really help. I mean, my, you know, my sister just had a baby and so I've been, luckily she lives 40 minutes away. So I've been going back and forth to help her. But, you know, I was realizing that, um, you know, if I were working in a, in a traditional job, I would have used up half of my annual vacation the baby's like two weeks old. Right, and, and I, I'm pretty sure there are no employers who give accommodation for helping out your sister with a newborn, right? I mean, I think, um, you know, universal parental leave would be nice and that's pretty obvious. And then yeah, you've got the, the sandwich generation or as I like to think of it, the panini generation because we're so squashed and I'm definitely um, you know, <laughs> falling into that now and thinking about you know our aging parents. But the, you know there are many, many other <laughs> ways um, that people need to give care to family members, but also, again, as we talked about, to our community and to our democracy, which desperately needs some care.
0: Mm.
2: Yeah. Right.
1: And, and, and so that's why we've got this question of like, what does work mm. make room for right now? And right now it's it's not enough.
2: That's the thing. I think just the fact that, and I really wish that we weren't calling this a she session, other than I'm not like for no other reason that it's a dumb name, but actually <laughs> it's a recession. <laughs> Actual real humans are losing their jobs. And as soon as we you know, color it in pink. We make it seem like it's something that only the media who care about women should pay attention to. That it's a women's issue. It's not a women's issue. It's an issue of care. I mean, you have that story where women are overburdened with care, and you have a story where where men are overburdened with with work. I mean, the the kind of wonderful part that I see in Christine's story is that the person sitting on the couch was her husband, and that's a really unusual story, and it shouldn't be. Mm-hmm. I mean, men are just as as pushed in the cultural narrative to achieve and put work for, for, first, and that's unfortunate. I mean, we... I, I've listened to all of these conversations. It's a conversation that mostly women have. And I feel like there's a missing conversation and it's starting to happen among men. And obviously we're talking about like cisgender, heterosexual, married couples. So it's very kind of that portion of society. But really when we make these changes, just like Christine is saying, we can change our whole culture to put a value on care. And that's what the problem is. We're having a recession right now in America because we don't place a value on care. And what kind of society are we if that's the case? We're the kind of society that doesn't mind ruining the planet. We're the kind of society that doesn't mind if people don't get food, if they're, if people um, are houseless, if, you know, the, these are the things that we need to change about America. And this is one piece of it. So I think that if we start to reorient around this issue of care, we're going to be able to repair and heal a lot of the things that were broken that are bigger from our past.
0: Yeah. And if I'm almost hearing, I don't know if you guys would put it in these words, but I'm hearing um, because you said also work doesn't leave enough space and it does not. Right. These days work like gobbles up as much time as it can or, you know, it doesn't pay you a sufficient wage. So you have to work multiple jobs to even try to um, have sustainable kind of income and to have sustain your life. And so and yet it's kind of like there isn't enough space also to for care and care on multiple levels is what I'm hearing. Yes.
2: Yes, absolutely. Absolutely.
0: So one of the things that's really powerful about the way that you are exploring this topic is that you're sharing stories of people who are doing things differently, as well as organizations. And you just mentioned one earlier, that's Bright Spot. I'm, I'm curious what you guys think is around the power of these stories you're telling. And if there's another, maybe, Christine, you could share one of your favorite stories um, that you've explored so far in this work. <laughs>
1: Careful, it's like telling me to pick my favorite kid. I'm sure.
0: Um, uh,
1: yeah, I think that. It- you know, the stories, that I, well, first of all, I mean, the reason that, that we're telling stories is, is we are storytellers and we believe that telling stories is the best way to um, illuminate, right? We we didn't want to write the guide of how to be happy at work and here are your 10 steps and your 10 hacks to only check your email before nine o'clock and never check your email after nine o'clock or, you know, only check your email for three minutes at a time or um whatever it is. That's that's not what we wanted to do. We wanted to share stories of people and organizations who are actually doing this because um, we believe that you learn best from stories. Uh, so for me, I think um what really draws me to a story is um someone uh or in one case you know we profiled a couple who have really um found a thing and whether it's, you know, their superpower, like Eva identified before, or um, just something that happened to them or something that moved them. And now they've turned that into a calling and turned it into their work. So we profiled um, a couple who created this wonderful community space here um, called Mac Market. And they uh, took over an old warehouse and have turned it into a gathering space and uh, pop up and Um, showcasing local vendors. And um, the the two of them quit their corporate jobs uh, in Seattle. Um, Although actually one of them is still doing it remotely, but um, they were sort of sitting at their um, laptops one sunny day and realized they could be doing this work from anywhere. And it was before the pandemic Uh, and they traveled around in an Airstream for two years because they were from a small town in Nebraska and they didn't really like Seattle and they wanted to find a place where community really felt like home. And so they traveled around and um, found McMinnville, Oregon, and found this amazing space. And now this is what they do. They run this amazing space called Mac market. Um, So I love stories like that. And we've got a a couple of others, Eva profiled um, Dean Yates uh, who you know, had been a reporter in um, conflict zones and um, through his own work on his own mental health has made that into his calling and his mission. Uh, so we've got a couple of stories like that where people have really found, um, found the thing that makes life valuable for them and makes life worth
2: living and crafted their work around that. Mm. And I think the interesting thing about this, I mean, two things. One, um, we've been really inspired inspired by Studs Terkel's book, Working, which came out, I think it came out in the 70s. This is like the Bible that's on my bookshelf. um, Studs Terkel was an oral historian and he profiled all of these everyday people. He called them everyday heroes. And these are working people talking about their lives and work. And the power of those stories they're just everyday people they're not famous people who've achieved a certain level of success and can tell you the three steps to you know achieve the same level of success this is really about learning and being inspired from everyday people so that's why we kind of focus that our stories on those sorts of people but i think the other thing is that it's really interesting that we're finding from our stories collectively is that when people do make some sort of intentional change to their work to support the lives that they want and to support the lives of others, it actually improves their their work that they're doing. So like the the couple who started Mac Market, what they've done is they've they've created this really essential third space in a community where communities can gather and come together. And that's something that's, I mean, it's it's unfortunate that the pandemic is happening, but it's something we're gonna need right after the pandemic. And you know, Dean Yates had this experience of getting PTSD when he was um I think he was the bureau chief in Baghdad for Reuters, he had this experience. And because he started talking about his mental health, he went back to Reuters and started a very important mental health program that they're now sharing with other reporters, which is so important right now because mental health is something that is suffering that a lot of people, poor mental health is something a lot of people are suffering from. So I think that it's really interesting how these individuals have sort of come to make a change in their own lives and it's making a change outside. And that's the other part of our theory of change is that if you address this in your own life first, you have the opportunity to make work better for others as well.
0: Hmm. Yeah, that's great. I mean, as you guys talk about this, I'm wondering, um, you know, I kind of, believe in this theory, you know, Jonathan hates work. I don't know if you read his book, the happiness hypothesis. And he talks about like one of the pillars of happiness is finding the right, really your right relationship with work. And he also talks about importantly, you know, getting, finding the right relationship between yourself and others. So perhaps community and yourself and something larger than yourself. Um, And so as you guys talk and as one reorients towards creating a life, creating your work to support the life you want. Do you guys have a sense of how to define or think about the purpose of work in one's life from that context? Like, what does it mean? And you guys talk about this also in the sense of defining work in human terms, um, you know? So, but how do you guys think about those questions of like, what is the role of work in this context? And I don't know which of you would prefer to answer that. (laughs) actually i have a
2: story that i think is kind of illuminating i think that um so before the pandemic our our neighbors from here in australia came to visit us we we usually go back to my home in oregon so that's the other thing that christine and i share in common is that we both have a home in oregon so we usually go back and visit my family in oregon and they our neighbors from australia came and they really wanted to go to walmart Because, um, I mean, this is kind of sad to me, but they wanted to go to Walmart because they knew that Americans could buy guns there and they wanted to see it for themselves because it's actually much harder to purchase a gun in Australia. So they went to Walmart and they came back and they were like eager to show me the photos they had taken. And they took these photos that Walmart had put all these signs up that said, now paying $15 an hour. And they were like, why are they bragging about this? Because the minimum wage in Australia is, you know, 25 to $30 an hour. And you always get overtime if you're working weekends or holidays. So it, occurred to me that we really have an inhumane system of work in America and we really like to pat ourselves on the back for meeting a minimum standard so when when we're thinking about the future of work and humane work i like to think about work as a product as an experience like if i think about i used to work at a magazine Okay, so our product was every other month, you got a printed magazine on your hands and you could go on to motherjones.com and you could read these stories. That wasn't the only product that that, employer was the employer also was creating this product of the work experience and what did that work experience look like so i think that employers i would love in the future of work for employers to look at their holistic work experience as a product that they're delivering to their employees and think is this humane Is it humane to pay somebody $15 an hour? Is it humane to not notify a single mother that she's gonna have a shift tomorrow and she can't find childcare that she can pay for? Is it humane that there and there's data behind this, that if you are um, a black woman and you have a white boss, that your mental health is gonna be worse because of that um, racial dynamic, because of the racism? Not only is your mental health going to be worse, your child's mental health is going to be worse. And there's data that say that. If that's your work product that you're delivering, that's inhumane. And so what we'd really like employers to do is say, I really want to understand what my work product looks like for all of my employees, not just my employees at headquarters, but my employees who are working at the cash registers, my employees, my contractors who are coming in to clean at night, I want to know what work, what the work experience is for them. Is it is it suiting their needs? And if it's if it's not, then we need to change our ways.
0: Yeah, this just reminds me. I just happened to be watching recently the documentary on Hillary Clinton, and they were showing how she gave the speech at the UN. I believe it was the UN, UN's Council on Women, and this was back. Years ago, decades ago, and it was in India, and she was um, saying, "This is the famous line where it's like women's rights are human's rights, and um, are human rights." And I, I kind of hear you saying, "Workers' rights are human rights." That's what I hear you saying in this. So that's really, really important. Christine, is there anything you want to add to that, or you know, what? How would you define work in this context? Um,
1: I no, I think I think. I think Eva Eva said it all. I mean, yeah. I, I think, um, you know, work as a product of the employer and then I think work, um, for many people is, is purely sustenance. I mean, the, the mm-hmm. notion of work being, um, purposeful and something that, you know, fulfills your desire, uh, is, is a pretty bougie, um, you know, yeah. relatively recent concept, not to, yes. not to delegitimize it, but, um, Uh, But for some people, that's what it is. And and that's what it should be, because we spent we spend so much darn time, uh, you know, in our workplaces and investing in our education. So um, I I think what we what we don't want to do is define it for anybody. Um, Mm. uh, But again, just look at the pieces for how one would. Um, define it for oneself and what are the what's the scaffolding that you need to put yeah. in place around you to make it work. Yeah.
0: Well, that goes back to, I think, uh, Eva, even just you sharing like what are the metrics that you want to use to define, you know, measure your own life. So you know, Days camping, hours running, as you shared, um, just as an example. Well, I mean, I could talk with you guys a long time about your work, um, but I need to be respectful of your time. I'd love to ask you just a final question. And, you know, I, I'll frame it up this way. Um, either, I I really want to hear just a final piece of advice you leave our our listeners with, but I'd also just, if you want to frame into that, you know, you've been on this journey and you even say in, on your, on your site, like that you are experimenting yourselves um, on this journey. And I'm curious, you know, when you look at it so far in your own experiences, what have you learned? You know, what, advice do you have for people to be courageous on their own to kind of start to be looking at their work differently and their life differently? So essentially to start to um, have to be able to take some steps for themselves to kind of say, how do I want to think about crafting my work to support my life? So I don't know if, Christine, you want to (laughs) start with just a final piece of advice with with that in mind.
1: Yeah, um yeah. well, I, I mean, the only piece of advice I ever dish out is never to take anybody else's advice um, because nobody else knows what you need to thrive. Nobody else knows your desires and your constraints and your superpowers and um, and what's really going to make you tick. So never take anybody else's advice. Um, but that said, I, I do actually <laughs> often give one piece of advice, which is that when somebody gives you advice, uh, and it is often very well-intentioned, big-hearted advice, um, when it begins with a you should statement, um, ask them to turn it into an I did Story because um inevitably they are imposing their own stuff on you. Uh, and you will be much better served if you ask for the story and draw your own conclusions rather than just listening what they think the punchline should be for you. Um, so uh example, like in our field of sustainability, I would get this um, all the time, like. Oh, you should definitely get a mainstream job, corporate job, before you get, get into something with the sustainability in the title. Right? And so you say, okay, um, thank you very much. Uh, are you saying that because um, you had a mainstream job first and you think it served you really well? Or because, you know, and then they'll say, oh, well, no, but I, I wish I had because now I'm completely pigeonholed and I can't do anything. Thank you so much right? Like, oh, you should definitely go to law school. Thank you so much. Are you saying that because you wish you'd gone to law school? <laughs> Are you saying that because you did No, no, no. I feel like it was an incredibly valuable experience, like the skills that I learned. Right. Yeah. So that's, um, get stories, get those stories.
0: Well, and what I appreciate in what you're saying, um, and hopefully this is fair for me to say, Christine, is like tune into yourself. Don't look elsewhere externally, kind of to draw conclusions or say what's right about for you. So hopefully it's okay for me (laughs) to interpret it that way. But that's kind of (laughs) what I'm hearing you say, which I think is really important. So, Eva, Eva, how about for you?
2: Yeah, I mean, kind of building on what Christine said, I would say looking at my own life, I think that what what as someone who started her career in journalism and then took a little bit of a winding path, I think you've talked about this in your own previous podcast, Kathy, kind of moved into book editing. And then I, you know, worked in communications and a nonprofit and now I work for myself. I think that I have often been influenced by um, external definitions of what success or ambition mean in my field. So, a lot of times I'll think, okay, well, I really need to get a byline in this one outlet, and then I'll be considered a serious writer or a serious journalist. And what's been really helpful for me to do is to push back on those notions and to think about what actually is really bringing me joy in my work and importantly in my life. So So expanding the definition of like, what brings me joy and purpose and fulfillment? Because work has such a strong pull to define us, particularly if you're, you know, like a white collar person where you'd kind of. a lot of us, I think, define ourselves by our work. So, so something that has brought me joy that has come been completely outside of work recently has been sitting down every evening. And my son wrote this like crazy story that's like 24,000 words long. And he wanted me to edit it, which was so, it just was like, so touched that he wants me to edit his stuff. Um, Even though he doesn't like me to cut anything. (laughs) Christine can probably relate. He's a true writer then. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but honestly, like, having that experience, sitting with him every night, having the time to, to be able to do that. And that brings me joy. And it makes me feel so connected to him that he really loves to write too, just for the pleasure of it. So I just feel like, you know, for me, that's been really valuable. So if you, if other people, I guess the lesson there would be, if other people can take a step back and think, what is it that work that I look to work for? Okay, and then are there other aspects of my life that can fulfill some of those needs that I look to work for that can diminish some of the importance? For instance, on identity, or you, and then you can look back and say, well, you know what? I fulfilled the purpose part of my need in my community. And if I can do that, then maybe I can put a little bit less energy into work and I can reclaim some of that for my own agency. So I do think it definitely depends on what your personal circumstance is. And I think that you can learn a lot from stories because you might see yourself in one of these many stories that we're publishing.
0: Yeah, wonderful. To that point, where can people find you to keep in touch? Thelifeiwant.co. All right. So I will capture that in the show notes as well as both of your individual websites. This has been so wonderful to talk with you both. Thank you again for being with me. It's really been a pleasure. Kathy,
1: thank you. And thank you for creating this space for this conversation. We, um, I think we share a mission of really wanting people to create lives that are impactful um, and sustainable in every dimension. So thank you for what you're doing.
0: Yes. Thank
2: you so much. Yes. I love that phrase, sustainable ambition. I'm going to use that. We might have to turn the tables and interview you as well. (laughs) (laughs) Sounds wonderful.
0: I look forward to staying in touch. Thank you both. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Sustainable Ambition Podcast. I hope you take away at least one learning or inspiration from today's conversation. Find more inspiring interviews and get show notes for this episode at sustainableambition.com podcast. Make sure you don't miss an episode or my insider tips, guides, and tools by signing up for Sustainable Ambition Forum, my twice monthly newsletter. Sign up at sustainableambition.com slash subscribe. And remember, it's not about finding work-life balance. It's about building work-life resilience. Thanks again for joining me. Speak with you next time.